Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 4. Last week, I wrapped up at the end of Exodus, Chapter 13. When the Israelites finally departed Egypt, headed for the wilderness, at that time I covered the reasons why they were not directed towards Canaan, a fact that would resonate for 40 years. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm summarizing Exodus chapters 14 through 17, and similar to the disclaimer I offered a few episodes ago, the text in these chapters remains primarily a storytelling narrative, so be prepared for many, many quotes, along with an episode that's rich in people, places, and concepts. So let's get started. Chapter 14 begins with God addressing Moses. God tells Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Piahiroth, between Megiddel and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall camp opposite it, by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them so that I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. End quote. And in here, there are three places I will cover to varying levels of depth after completing the summary of the book, namely Piahiroth, Migadel, and Bel-Zephon, duly noted. The next part of the text tells us what was going on with the Egyptians. Specifically, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the minds of Pharaoh and his officials were changed toward the people, and they said, What have we done, letting Israel leave our service? So he had his chariot made ready, and took his army with him. He took six hundred picked chariots, and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites, who were going out boldly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his chariot drivers and his army. They overtook them camped by the sea at Piahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon." As you probably noticed, the narrative is a bit confusing on how many chariots were actually there. Was it 600, or were there more? We'll probably never know which is correct, but it does give me a new topic to cover later, Egyptian chariots and charioteers. Moving along. When the chariots became visible to the Israelites, the people began to turn on Moses Seriously, the guy couldn't catch a break from the people he had just freed from years of bondage, generations of bondage. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone, and let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses replied, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. 
And then God spoke to Moses, giving him directions over his next steps. And it had to be a bit surprising. God told Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. But you lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the Israelites may go into the sea on dry ground. Then I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And so I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all of his army, his chariots, and his chariot drivers. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained glory for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his chariot drivers. End quote. The text then tells us that it was an angel of the Lord who was leading the Israelites as a pillar of cloud. The angels, since the Egyptians were now in hot pursuit, moved to the rear of the Israelites, coming between the, quoting, army of Egypt and army of Israel. And there's a little tidbit in here. Despite only having been gone for a short period of time, maybe only a day or two, up to perhaps a week, the Israelites had organized an army. Next, the Israelites approached the sea, but at this point, the specific sea remained unnamed. We can assume fairly safely given the text in the previous chapter, that it was the Red Sea. But note, the footnotes of chapter 13 indicate it could also have been translated as the Sea of Reeds, reeds as in a grass that grows in a wetland. I'll cover both the geography of the Red Sea, along with what is known about the other translation, the Sea of Reeds, in a future episode. As they approached the sea from the text, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went down into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, Let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. End quote. But it was too late. God gave Moses his next set of instructions and he was obedient once again from the text. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. End quote. Chapter 14 wraps up noting that God saved Israel that day and that the Israelites feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Which brings me to chapter 15. The first two-thirds or so of the chapter quote a song, known as the Song of Moses, that Moses, of course, along with all the Israelites, sang in celebration of the miraculous delivery from Egypt and the drowning of the Egyptian army. I'll spare you my recitation of the song, 
but you know where to find it. I will note, though, that the song mentions four places, specifically Philistia, Edom, Moab, and Canaan. I have previously covered all of these. Philistia in chapter 2, episode 47, Edom in chapter 2, episode 65, Moab in chapter 2, episodes 44 and 45, and Canaan in depth in chapter 2, episodes 23 through 30. Feel free to go back and give these a listen. A couple of other notes about the song. It talks about the character of God. He is a warrior. His name is the Lord, and he steadfastly loves the Israelites. It also talks about other things, such as the victories over the four places I just listed, presumably over what they thought were going to be future victories. We'll have to wait and see about that. Next, in chapter 15, we are told of the prophet Miriam, who is mentioned as being Aaron's sister. But in my mind, that would also make her Moses' sister. But this isn't stated. No explanation for this is given. In the chapter, she took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and danced, singing a very specific song that's quoted in the text. Once again, I'll spare you of my rendition, but I will cover Miriam, and maybe what they thought of as a tambourine in the future. At the end of the chapter, Moses orders them to get on the move, and they do, leaving the shore of the Red Sea, and here again it's footnoted as also translatable as the Sea of Reeds. They set out for the wilderness of shore. For three days they traveled in the desert without water. Then they came to a place known as Mara, where, thankfully, there was water. But, big disappointment, the water was not potable, as it was far too bitter. And, according to the text, the people complained against Moses. Now, they didn't complain to Moses, but against him. He really couldn't catch a break from the Israelites. They said, very unsurprisingly, What shall we drink? And Moses cried out to God, who instructed him to throw a piece of wood into the water, which then became sweet. Problem solved and thirst quenched. God then gives them a commandment with a promise. He tells the Israelites, If you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give heed to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will not bring upon you any of the diseases that I brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. I hope they were listening. The chapter ends with the Israelites arriving at a place called Elam, where there were twelve springs with water and seventy palm trees, an oasis, and they camped there. So, the last part of the chapter gives me three additional places to cover. Shur, Mara, and Elam. Which brings me to chapter 16. And the first couple of sentences of the chapter are very specific. The Israelites set out from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And specific details like this give this story more credibility. Also, Sin, spelled just like it sounds, and Sinai will be covered later. And one more note. 
It's not the wilderness in sin, as in where people break God's commandments, but the wilderness of sin. And to add a bit more clarity, sin was the Mesopotamian god of the moon. Back to the text. Now that the Israelites have water, what would be their next complaint? Well, food of course. And God hears their cries, once again from the text. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall gather enough for that day. In that way I will test them, whether they follow my instruction or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gathered on other days. And, apparently both Moses and Aaron were tiring of the people not just complaining to them, but also complaining about them. So, they both said to the people, In the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaining against the Lord. For what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, and your fill of bread in the morning, because the Lord has heard the complaining that you utter against him, what are we? Your complaining is not against us, but against the Lord. End quote. Next, and as Moses alluded to, God gives them a provision of meat to go along with the bread. The next part of the text gives us greater detail about the meat, this time being from quails, and also details about the bread that's found in the morning. Moses gives the people very specific instructions, and of course, they fail to follow what he said, to the point that they did not properly dispose of their leftovers, hoarding some for fear that God would not provide any the next day. And the leftover bread bred worms. Yes, the bread bred worms. It's in the text. Look it up. All of this led to an angry Moses. On the sixth day, God provided twice the normal amount, so that they would not have to gather any on the Sabbath. And this time, the bread was kept fresh for two days. And keep in mind that this was pre-Ten Commandments, so essentially the first instruction in that direction. But, as you should be able to guess by this point, the people did not listen. Again. This is quickly becoming a theme. God then chastises Moses, saying, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and instructions? See, the Lord is giving you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day he gives you food for two days. Each of you stay where you are. Do not leave your place on the seventh day. End quote. The chapter wraps up with an explanation and an address from Moses, and this one paragraph has a couple of items that resonate to this day. Quoting, The house of Israel called it manna, meaning the bread. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations in order that they may see the food with which I have fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. 
as the Lord commanded Moses. So Aaron placed it before the covenant for safekeeping. The Israelites ate manna forty years until they came to the habitable land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is a tenth of an ephah. End quote. So the two things are manna from heaven, which kept coming for the forty years in the wilderness, and the second is the beginning of tithing, one tenth. And in here, there are a few items that I will cover to varying levels of detail in the future. Obviously, manna, omers, and ephahs. But also, I'll spend a wee bit of time on coriander seeds. After all, they're probably in your spice cabinet. But you may have no idea what kind of plant they are from, or even that they were in the Bible. And with that, we get to chapter 17. At the beginning of chapter 17, we're told of a bit of the manner in which the Israelites traveled. From the wilderness of Sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages, as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, duly noted a new place to cover. We're then told of how Rephidim had no water, and you can probably guess what happened next. Yep, they complained to and about Moses. I guess they didn't take his last speech terribly seriously. They told him, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And then he cried out to God, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. He was really fed up. God tells Moses, and pay attention because the next couple of passages define what is to happen to Moses. Anyway, God tells him, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you, taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it, so that the people may drink. End quote. And with that are several more places to cover. The next paragraph is a curious sampling of the interactions of the Israelites with outside groups. From the text. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some men for us and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the sun set, and Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the sword. End quote. And a couple more people to dive into, and probably the most interesting way to win a battle that I've covered so far. Chapter 17 ends with God addressing Moses again. This time he says, Write this as a reminder in a book and recite it in the hearing of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Moses then built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. 
He also predicts a strifeful future between the Israelites and the nation founded by the grandson of Esau, saying, The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Which is probably a good place to end this week's episode. And before signing off, a quick recap on the people, places, and concepts that I will be covering in the future. The places of Pyahiroth, Migadol, Belzephron, the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, Shur, Mara, Elam, Sin, Sinai, Rephidim, and Horeb. The people known as the Amalek, the man named Hur, and no, not Ben, and the woman named Miriam. The concepts of Egyptian chariots and charioteers, manna, omers, ephahs, coriander seeds, and maybe why a tambourine of all musical instruments was found in the Old Testament. And I know that progress through the book has seemed to slow, and it has. But remember, this is a podcast about the history in and around the Bible. And this part of the text is dense, extremely dense, with historical narrative. There will be a point in the future when the pace picks up. For example, I have no desire, nor do I think it would add anything, for me to dive into each of the 613 laws found in the Old Testament. So be patient, just for a bit more, and the pace will quicken. And with that, join me next week when I'll begin the summary of Exodus chapter 18. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.